0: It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, the 945th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'myourmoderator.substack.com. So today I want to talk about the most precious thing in the entire world. And of course, I'm talking about our democracy. And I know what you're thinking. Don't we have a republic, a constitutional republic? And the answer is, I guess we used to. I don't think we do now. I mean, they tell us we don't now. They tell us that we're a democracy. This is our democracy collectively. And we need to protect it. We need to protect it. All the way around the world. And if there's any country that's not part of our democracy, that country must become part of our democracy. Because if they don't become part of our democracy, then we are letting the people of that nation down, even though we have absolutely no responsibility to them and they want nothing to do with us. Now, we're led to believe by the people who say our democracy is the most important thing in the world. That democracy is a system that works for the people because the people all give their input onto what they want to see out of their government, how they want their government to function, how they want their government to represent them. And then through this series of decisions that the people make collectively, they build and form a society that operates for the benefit of all those people. Now, Philosophers and political philosophers and political quote unquote scientists have studied democracy throughout the ages. Thousands of years, people have been thinking about democracy and whether or not that is the best form of government. It turns out it's not. But despite that, we are led to believe that democracy is the best form of government. It is the only form that guarantees fairness and justice to the people. Now, throughout the ages, people have noticed the problems with democracy, the impracticalities of a direct democracy, problems like the tyranny of the majority, where 50% plus one because they have the majority could subjugate 50% minus one because they don't, simply by voting to do so. And those are all important problems, but the proponents of democracy say, We've accounted for those problems. We fixed all that. And democracy is still the very, very best solution, no matter what. And people will mostly shrug and go along with it and think, yeah, I guess that's fair. That's probably the fairest way to do it. And we need this whole government. We need some sort of system, don't we? So let's just go along with this democracy thing, I guess. And over time, the communications we receive from government, from culture, from media, etc., convince us that voting and democracy are the same things. We have a representative democracy so that some of our voting responsibilities are delegated to the people we have already voted for, and those people will do their voting in a smaller version of our democracy. We have a democratic republic. We have the republican form of government as guaranteed by our constitution, but the system... And its representatives are all chosen through our democracy. And people shrug and they say things like, it is what it is. And they just go on about their lives assuming, well, it's democratic, so it must be sort of legitimate. People out there are voting for what they want. I may not agree with them, but if they have the majority, then who am I to say no? And on some level, that shrug is natural, assuming that elections are legitimate. As soon as you realize that elections are not legitimate, then our democracy just becomes a way to convince the people that they have chosen the fate that is being thrust upon them by this global communist regime. They steal elections all around the world and tell people that their leadership and that the policies being implemented, that what's happening in their countries is all a result of democratic choices by the people. If the people want something different, then the people need to vote for something different. The people need to vote for change. They need to vote for hope and change. Once things really start getting bad, and that paradigm holds up for as long as people believe in the elections, once people stop believing in the integrity of the elections, once people find out that the elections aren't elections at all, Well, then the entire illusion of democracy itself immediately vanishes. Democracy is a problematic enough system as it is, but at least you can shrug and go along with it, assuming that the elections are legitimate. If the elections aren't legitimate, then what part of our democracy is democratic? And it turns out that the answer is no parts of our democracy are democratic. And that is why the one global regime that clearly states constantly they are creating a world order around the spread of our democracy continually finds they have to do so through force and subjugation. Now, Colonel Douglas McGregor has been a key figure since the beginning of 2022 When the Russia-Ukraine conflict began to make headlines, he has been one of the most calm and sane and informed and rational voices throughout that process. The knowledge he has imparted throughout that time has been invaluable. He has been leading the way on the Russia-Ukraine counter-narrative opposed to the regime narrative that is spread throughout global state propaganda media and is distributed at massive scale. Two standard issue villagers nationwide. I'm not aware of anyone who speaks to the reality of the situation and to its history more directly than Colonel Douglas McGregor. He was on Tucker Carlson a few days ago talking about primarily the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and he had this to say about quote unquote our democracy and one of the key global spreaders of our democracy. Undersecretary of State, Victoria Nuland.
4: Who is Victoria Newland? Oh, goodness gracious. All these hard questions. <laughs> I, I do not know Victoria Newland personally. I, I know Fred Kagan, and his brother Bob is married to her. And she's a long-term uh, committed neocon. This is someone I would not characterize as either Democrat or Republic. These are people with this agenda. And the agenda says until the entire world is garrisoned by U.S. forces and is converted forcibly to some form of democracy that we approve of, uh, the world will not be safe and we must continue to fight. And I think in the, in the case of Russia, Russia has special appeal because I think these people have ancestors who came from that region of the world and have a permanent axe to grind with the Russians, uh, which, of course, I don't. I don't think most Americans do, and nor do I think anybody in government should shape policy based on whatever unhappiness their ancestors you know, experienced in, in a place like Russia. So I, I, that's, a, that's a nutshell, but I think that's enough. And wherever she goes, uh, usually there is conflict, crisis, and fighting. And she's a strong opponent of fighting to the last Ukrainian.
0: So the world must be moved forcibly to some form of democracy we approve of. Now, Victoria Newland by title is representing the United States of America, but she is only representing the evil twin faction within the United States of America. She is representing the global regime in the United States of America. She is essentially using the United States of America. And of course, that means the resources, the wealth and the labor of the people of the United States of America to spread our democracy, worldwide, on behalf of the global regime. He notes that these neocons will not stop until every corner of the world is garrisoned by U.S. forces. What does that sound like to you? Do you think that he is spreading conspiracy theories? Do you think his decades of dedicated service to the United States of America and our founding principles lead him to this conclusion mistakenly? Does he simply not know what he's talking about? Well, no, none of that rings true whatsoever. And most of us, if we're old enough, have the experience of watching the early 2000s, where we got to hear George W. Bush tell us about how they were going to spread democracy to the Middle East. Now, just as a sidebar, it is very interesting that McGregor subtly dropped in the fact that Newland and people associated with Newland have this ancestral hatred of the Russian people based on their lineage from that area of the world. That whole Ukrainian slash Prussian slash Kazarian area of the world, you know, the bloodlands kind of makes it seem like this whole Russia-Ukraine conflict might be about something more than Ukraine's very sovereign borders. But leaving that aside, the point is that our democracy is so important that it must be spread by force to every country on Earth. And, hey, let's spread it all the way to space while we're at it. India today landed on the South Pole of the moon, which is amazing because Russia just tried it the other day and they failed. And Elon Musk, he keeps launching rockets towards space. They never make it. We landed on the moon like 50 years ago, but not since, and not on the South Pole. That's impossible, at least until today. But apparently, India was able to put together the same sort of lunar lander that we landed on the moon decades and decades ago, and not since. And theirs kind of looked like it was made out of bricks. So bricks went to the moon right during this whole bricks conference they're having. I mean, It's just a funny coincidence, that's all. For sure, they definitely got to the moon. And the way they did it was they slightly upgraded from aluminum foil and shower rods. Now, it's strange that they're not able to reach the South Pole of Earth, but I'm sure they have before and they just don't tell us about it. But let's get back to spreading democracy around the globe. Victoria Newland and her fellow globalists and neocons know that our democracy must be spread everywhere. If it's not spread everywhere, then we're not going to be able to have a one-world global government. And if we can't have a one-world global government, then the project of the UN, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the WTO, and all of the transnational corporations around the world who coordinate... On that global governing plan, well, their project will have failed. They need every country involved or else you can't have a one-world global government. By definition, they need them all. That's why we have these global governing bodies. It's not a secret. It's not a conspiracy theory. They tell us about it all the time. They talk about it all the time. It's important to have every country as part of our democracy or the project fails. So every country must have our democracy, even if they don't want it. That is why we spread our democracy by force. And it's important to note that we are justified in doing it because our democracy is the best form of government. And if people don't want it for themselves, it's because they are mistaken. And so it's Our duty to save these people from themselves by spreading our democracy through force. And if many of those people, even the majority of them, die in the process, well, that's unfortunate, but that's what it takes to spread our democracy. And we as Americans understand the importance of spreading our democracy. We talk about it all the time. We think about it all the time. We are told about it all the time. Our democracy is all we can depend on. If our democracy falls in the United States of America, then the world may as well just end. That will destroy the project of global governance. That will destroy the project of a one world global order. And that's why we must protect our democracy in the United States of America at all costs. Donald Trump was threatening to destroy our democracy in the United States of America, and that's why they had to steal an election. They stole the election to preserve our democracy in the United States of America. If they lose the United States of America from their overall global plan and strategy, well, then the whole thing just goes belly up and we can't risk that. Even if it's what the people want, we just can't risk it. This is not the sort of decision that you can just make democratically. And while they seem to have protected our democracy from Donald Trump for at least a little while, you can never be sure that it is fully protected. And even if they've protected it from Trump, well, they haven't protected our democracy from the people. The spread of democracy is so important that you can use force. It is so important that you can steal elections to override the will of the people because they cannot be trusted. But it is also so important for the people to know that you're doing all of that to preserve democracy on their behalf, even if you are working to eliminate democracy entirely in order to preserve our democracy. And so that's what I want to talk about today, how we must destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. Now, in the last week, a clip has been making the rounds of Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum talking to Sergey Brin of Google. And here's that clip.
4: Technology now is, and digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples and your company very much involved into it. But since the next step could be to go into a prescriptive mode, which means um, uh, you, you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what uh, predict and afterwards you can say, why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be.
0: So this is Klaus in 2017 talking about how AI can move beyond the analytical into the prescriptive And eventually eliminate the need for elections because they already know what the people want. Now, while it was not a focus of the conversation at all in that same conversation between Tucker Carlson and Colonel Douglas McGregor, McGregor actually mentioned that all AI is is advanced algorithms. He's not one of those people lighting their hair on fire about how powerful AI is going to be and how dangerous AI is going to be. They're just algorithms. But to refocus on Klaus Schwab, he's saying something interesting and relevant, but also revealing their intent and what they think of the actual will of the people. He is certainly describing a real situation. If you have all the data that Google has access to and that goes into that great data collection space in the clouds, that firehose of everything, all the data, everyone's data about everything, their movements, their thoughts, their communications, their spending habits, all of it. You have all that and you can analyze their behavior. You can analyze their behavior in a way that helps you manipulate their behavior. You can also analyze their behavior in a way that helps you predict What they're going to do. And if you can do that accurately enough, you don't actually need to watch them do those things. In reality, you can just understand that they will do those things and then act as if they've already done them, which would in itself obviate the need for elections. You already know how the people are going to vote. So why even bother making them vote? That is the argument that Klaus Schwab is making. Now, it would be nice to pretend that there is nothing to that idea and that that's not possible. That's not something that would actually work. But it absolutely is possible and it absolutely would work. It's certainly not a perfect system and it's not at all a moral system, but they can predict with a high degree of accuracy what people's behaviors are going to be based on all of the data they have about these people. Now, the part that he's leaving out is that they're manipulating all the information that goes into those same people's heads. So when you're doing that, being able to track and predict how they will react to all of that information is not some natural reflection of what they actually want and need and believe and care about. They are creating the ideas, having those ideas echoed back to them, then analyzing the ideas that are echoed back. And it just goes in a cycle. And then once they have done that enough, they can say, well, based on this data, it is true that 55 or 60% of the people are going to choose this thing. And they might be totally accurate in that. But again, none of that is a natural process. That is them creating a collective mindset and then manipulating and exploiting that collective mindset to reach their desired ends. That is full control from start to finish over anything that could plausibly be considered a democratic process, which they will then call our democracy. Once again, the will and intent of the people is nowhere to be found. Should we have elections at that point? Klaus Schwab is simply asking, what difference would it make? It's kind of the perfect situation, isn't it? If you want full control over everyone in the entire world, you're already stealing the elections anyway. Why don't we just convince the people, he's saying, to get rid of the idea that elections were ever important in the first place? We'll just tell them, as we already do, That we are making the best possible decisions on their behalf and that the majority of people agree with their decisions. They will show us data to indicate that that's true and then everybody will shrug and go along with it. And if that doesn't work, they're going to spread democracy by military force anyway. So you're better off just shrugging and going along with it. If you choose not to, you will be labeled a threat to our democracy and you will be dealt with appropriately. Censorship. Sure. The inability to interact with your world in a normal way. Sure. Cut you off from places you can go, places you can shop, the sorts of things you can buy and consume. Sure. Leave you unable to communicate with your friends and family and loved ones. Sure. And if that's not enough, can they imprison you for noncompliance? Sure. We got a test run of it throughout COVID and hey, we might see another test run. Yes, a new pandemic for the 2024 election used to be a conspiracy theory, but now it's just reality, but a natural reality because pandemics cannot be caused by humans. It just so happens that they naturally wait until the election cycle. Now, just like that's a conspiracy theory, Klaus Schwab thinking that we won't need elections in the future is also a conspiracy theory. And on August 18th of this year, the very reputable newspaper USA Today ran this fact check. Video shows Klaus Schwab discussing risks of AI misuse in democracies. That's what you heard. You didn't hear him telling Sergey Brin how the future could be now that we are able to seed everyone's opinions and manipulate those opinions and then predict What they're going to do based on those opinions. He was warning Sergey Brin about the potential dangers. Their rating USA Today's rating false. The post uses an out of context clip of Schwab discussing possible misuse of AI. He doesn't endorse the idea of using predictive AI instead of elections. The social media post misrepresents a clip of Schwab speaking at a WEF event in 2017 where he discusses concerns people have about misuse of the predictive power of A.I. This is indeed a false interpretation taken out of context from Professor Schwab's full speech. D. Dye, a WEF spokesperson, told USA Today in an email. The fact check writes... The full video shows a conversation between Schwab and Google co-founder Sergey Brin that is described as covering, quote, leadership, entrepreneurship, and the fourth industrial revolution, end quote. At the 953 mark of the video, the conversation turns to the predictive capabilities of artificial intelligence. So that is enough context. You just start at 953. You don't need the prior context. This is the context you need. And here's the quote as USA Today relays it. But one fear I have heard is technology now is and digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, says Schwab, as you heard in the video. And we have seen the first examples and your company is very much involved into it. But since the next step could be to go into prescriptive mode, which means you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already predict. And afterwards, you can say, Why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. Can you imagine such a world? Okay, so that's exactly what we heard on the video. The context shows that Schwab is asking about fears that predictive AI could be used in place of democratic elections, not endorsing the idea. Bryn goes on to suggest that people making such a claim might even suggest elected leaders would no longer be necessary before redirecting the conversation. And of course, that's only the logical next step. It's good that Bryn pointed that out. Why would we need elected representatives if we already know based on the data that we have reflecting the narratives we've seeded, the information we've transmitted After our censorship and propaganda operations are in full swing, we won't need elections. And if we don't need elections, then why would we need elected representatives? Couldn't we just have the most pure form of democracy ever where people don't express their opinions or beliefs at all because we already know them because we already created them? And then we can just tell everybody, hey, The data, the science says this. So that's what it is now. You voted for it. Or at least you thought about it. Or at least you considered it. Or at least you read a link that showed you that information. And that is enough. That is our standard for you believing it. And so, hey, democracy. And let's just for fun go through the rest of this dystopian fact check. There are no references endorsing the use of predictive AI to replace elections on the WEF's website. Nor are there any credible media reports of Schwab or the organization he founded taking such a position, if you ignore that video clip. The social media post uses a clip from Infowars, a frequent source of misinformation. Now, let's be clear. The video clip is from a World Economic Forum event. It's Klaus Schwab and Sergey Brin. Even this fact check admits that. It doesn't matter where the video clip is from. And declaring that InfoWars is a frequent source of misinformation is absolutely meaningless. The WEF, a non-governmental organization that draws global leaders to its annual event in Davos, Switzerland, has been a frequent target of misinformation. USA Today has recently debunked claims that the organization endorsed using AI to write a new Bible that a purported WEF leader said conspiracy theorists must be eliminated and that it mandated the consumption of human waste to combat climate change. And just like these claims about what Schwab said, those claims are completely false as determined by the fact checkers. You see, they didn't suggest that AI would write a new Bible it's just that Yuval Noah Harari, the philosopher king of the World Economic Forum, suggested that AI might write a new form of the Bible. And similarly, it's false that the WEF is going to mandate humans consume their own waste products because the WEF doesn't have the power to mandate that. Very reassuring. Now, it just so happens that Klaus Schwab is one of those people whose lineage comes from that part of the world and whose ancestors were engaged in that same conflict. Klaus's, of course, were engaged in activity that might be considered part of that same conflict back in World War II. Guess which side he was on. Is it the Nazis? Yeah, Of course it is. And if you'd like to engage with the extensive history of Klaus Schwab there is an article specifically on Klaus Schwab in the Russia Gate series in their subseries called the Reichswef. Klaus Schwab is the leader of the World Economic Forum one of the central global governing bodies looking to spread our democracy throughout the world and like Victoria Newland and other neocons which find their ideological roots in the same Russian empire and in the same movements and are direct descendants from Trotsky, Klaus understands that we just might have to destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. Now, we're not allowed to say it like that, you see, and no one would ever state it like that because saying it like that would be a conspiracy theory. So you have to find different approaches. And we've seen some different approaches recently. This is from the New York Times on Monday. Elections are bad for democracy. That's the headline from the New York Times. Elections are bad for democracy. It's like they're trying to start a violent insurrection or something. On the eve of the first debate of the 2024 presidential race, trust in government is rivaling historic lows. Officials have been working hard to safeguard elections and assure citizens of their integrity. But if we want public office to have integrity, we might be better off eliminating elections altogether. If you think that sounds (laughs) anti-democratic, think again. The ancient Greeks invented democracy. And in Athens, many government officials were selected through sortition, a random lottery from a pool of candidates. In the United States, we already use a version of lottery to select jurors. What if we did the same with mayors, governors, legislators, justices, and even presidents? And to be clear, that is not what we do with jury selection. That's how people get the notice to attend a jury selection that is then performed by lawyers and judges. This is one of those things that only a very serious intellectual could say, assuming that everybody will just be like, oh, yeah, I remember getting a jury duty notice when I was selected by the lottery. So sure, it's just like that. People expect leaders chosen at random to be less effective than those picked systematically. But in multiple experiments led by the psychologist Alexander Haslam, the opposite held true. Groups actually made smarter decisions when leaders were chosen at random than when they were elected by a group or chosen based on leadership skill. And that's the thing. You got to make smarter decisions. Now, who determines whether the decisions were smarter or not? Well, the experts, of course. It's strange, right? In a democracy, you shouldn't think that the standard should be whether or not the decisions are deemed smarter by experts or people who want to weigh in. The decisions would only be good or bad based on whether or not the majority voted for them. That's the entire point of democracy. Why were randomly chosen leaders more effective? They led more democratically. Well, by golly, that is incredible. The way to have more democratic leadership is by eliminating democracy. Gosh, that's incredible. Systematically selected leaders can undermine group goals, Dr. Haslam and his colleagues suggest, because they have a tendency to quote, assert their personal superiority, end quote. When you're anointed by the group, it can quickly go to your head, I'm the chosen one. When you know you're picked at random, You don't experience enough power to be corrupted by it. Instead, you feel a heightened sense of responsibility. I did nothing to earn this, so I need to make sure I represent the group well. That is what they assert these people would think when they're selected at random rather than being chosen by a group to lead. Over the past year, I've floated the idea of sortition with a number of current members of Congress. Their immediate concern is ability. How do we make sure that citizens chosen randomly are capable of governing? Isn't it amazing that people in Congress are asking that while pretending the proof that they themselves are capable of governing exists in the fact that they were elected in elections they know to be illegitimate? Oh, it's incredible. These people can simply rationalize anything, and perhaps that's the skill that makes them so capable of governing. In ancient Athens, people had a choice about whether to participate in the lottery. They also had to pass an examination of their capacity to exercise public rights and duties. In America, imagine that anyone who wants to enter the pool has to pass a civics test, the same standard as immigrants applying for citizenship. We might wind up with leaders who understand the Constitution. Well, yes, we might, assuming that only constitutional questions are on that test, but Again, you've introduced another element into this lottery. We are going to have a test determined by authorities and judged by authorities on whether or not a person can enter the pool. And if we had this system, of course, and we had this pool that required certain things of the citizens, then it wouldn't be A long shot to imagine a situation where there might be requirements based on speech and political ideology, or that you haven't, for example, participated in an insurrection. And we'll get to more of that later. A lottery would improve our odds of avoiding the worst candidates in the first place. When it comes to character, our elected officials aren't exactly crushing it. To paraphrase William F. Buckley Jr., I'd rather be governed by the first 535 people in the phone book. That's because the people most drawn to power are usually the least fit to wield it. The most dangerous traits in a leader are what psychologists call the dark triad of personality traits. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. What these traits share is a willingness to exploit others for personal gain. People with dark triad traits tend to be more politically ambitious. They're attracted to authority for its own sake. But we often fall under their spell. Is that you, George Santos? Isn't that incredible? George Santos is their example. How about George Soros instead? Or how about, by the way, Joe Biden? The fake president went to Hawaii the other day and fell asleep and walked around aimlessly and told stories about his dead son and his dead wife and his dead daughter. He repeated a made up story about a kitchen fire as if it burned down his whole house. This was him expressing sympathy for the victims of the very natural disaster down in Hawaii. But the thing is, whenever Joe brings up those stories about his dead wife and daughter, you have to remember that Joe lied for decades about that very accident. And whenever I remember that story, I also remember an article from 1974 in The Washingtonian, an interview of Joe Biden as a young senator. And in that interview, he says about his dead wife, my wife was the brains behind my campaign. I would never have made it here without her. It's hard to imagine ever going through another campaign without her. She was the most intelligent human being I have ever known. She was absolutely brilliant. I'm smart, but Nelia was 10 times smarter, and she had the best political sense of anybody in the world. She always knew the right thing to do. Let me show you my favorite picture of her, he says, holding up a snapshot of Nelia in a bikini. She had the best body of any woman I ever saw. She looks better than a playboy bunny, doesn't she? That's his dead wife he's talking about. My beautiful millionaire wife was a conservative Republican before she met me, but she changed her registration. At first, she didn't want me to run for Senate. We had such a beautiful thing going and we knew all those stories about what politics can do to a marriage. She didn't want that to happen. At first, she stayed home with the kids while I campaigned, but that didn't work out because I'd come back too tired to talk to her. I might satisfy her in bed, but I didn't have much time for anything else. That's when she started campaigning with me, and that's when I started winning. You know, the people of Delaware really elected her, he says, but they got me. That is Joe Biden talking about his dead wife. But here's the part that is more to reference the problem described in this New York Times article. Narcissistic, Machiavellian, and psychopathic. Biden says he no longer allows himself the luxury of long-range planning, but he enjoys the prestige of being a senator and seems committed to finishing his six-year term. In fact, he says he might consider running for president. My wife always wanted me to be on the Supreme Court, he says. But while I know I can be a good senator and I know I can be a good president, I do know that I could never be another Oliver Wendell Holmes. I know I could have easily made the White House with Nelia. And my family still expects me to be there one of these days. With them behind me, anything can happen. This was Joe Biden 50 years ago, right as he was beginning his time with Robert Byrd, the Klan leader who Joe Biden was mentored in politics by for decades. It was before he wrote the crime bills and made all those very anti-racist statements about black people. It was before his plagiarism problems and lying problems ruined two prior presidential runs. And it was when he was just embarking on his 50 year career of political crime and corruption, working with people like Whitey Bulger's family and selling out the interests of his constituents first to corporations based in Delaware and more recently to our adversaries around the world. But George Santos, an actual avatar of whatever they decide he's an avatar for, is the problem. It's not Joe Biden, and it's definitely not Barack Obama, who everybody now knows lied about being gay for the entire time he was president. But hey, the point here is that selecting someone at random gives us a better chance of not running into these dangerous and narcissistic traits That we see exhibited in so many people seeking political power. In a study of elections worldwide, candidates who were rated by experts as having high psychopathy scores actually did better at the ballot box. In the United States, presidents assessed having psychopathic and narcissistic tendencies were more persuasive with the public than their peers. A common explanation is that they're masters of fearless dominance and superficial charm, and we mistake their confidence for competence. Sadly, it starts early. Even kids who display narcissistic personality traits get more leadership nominations and claim to be better leaders. They aren't. And naturally, they're not talking about Joe Biden, who got the most real votes of any politician ever and has spent 50 years of his life doing the exact thing they're talking about. But it's not him. It's not him. If the dark triad wins an election, we all lose. When psychologists rated the first 42 American presidents, the narcissists were more likely to take reckless risks, make unethical decisions and get impeached. Add a dash of Machiavellianism and a pinch of psychopathy, and you get autocrats like Putin, Erdogan, Orban and Duterte. Oh, look, it's those autocrats again, the people who are refusing to participate in, quote unquote, our democracy. That's what makes them autocrats. Do the sovereign citizens of their sovereign lands want them to be the sovereign leader of those sovereign lands? Yes, but that doesn't matter in our democracy. What matters in our democracy is whether or not you're part of our democracy. And if you don't want it, well, you don't have a choice. That's what being part of our democracy is all about. Eliminate voting, and candidates with dark triad traits would be less likely than they are now to rise to the top. Of course, there's also a risk that a lottery would deprive us of the chance to select a leader with distinctive skills. At this point, that's a risk I'm willing to take. As lucky as America was to have Lincoln at the helm, it's more important to limit our exposure to bad character than to roll the dice on the hopes of finding the best. It's weird because I'm having a hard time finding the part where what people want actually matters in this explanation. Besides, if Lincoln were alive now, it's hard to imagine that he'd even put his top hat in the ring. <laughs> you guys, you guys know Lincoln with the, the top hat. I uh, get it. Uh, his hat in the ring, uh, his top hat in the ring. Get it. Get it. <laughs> yeah. New York Times. Yeah. New York Times. In a world filled with divisiveness and derision, evidence shows that members of Congress are increasingly rewarded for incivility and they know it. And not the incivility of someone like Nancy Pelosi, for instance, or the incivility of someone like Adam Schiff, for instance, who spent years lying about privileged information he had acquired in top secret intelligence committee meetings. No, they're referring to the incivility of people like George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, all the evil, evil, bad people. A lottery would give a fair shot to people who aren't tall enough or male enough to win. It would also open the door to people who aren't connected or wealthy enough to run. Our broken campaign finance system lets the rich and powerful buy their way into races, while preventing people without money or influence from getting on the ballot. They're probably better candidates. Research suggests that on average, people who grow up in low-income families tend to be more effective leaders, and less likely to cheat. They're less prone to narcissism and entitlement. But thank goodness that our elites individually are not susceptible to these things. Sure, as a class they are, but any elite reading this will know that the author is not talking about them specifically because they are very, very good ones. Switching to sortition would save a lot of money too. The 2020 elections alone cost upward of $14 billion. And if there's no campaign, there are no special interests offering to help pay for it. $14 billion. That's how much it cost to create 81 million real awful American votes for Joe Biden. Finally, no voting also means no boundaries to gerrymander and no electoral college to dispute. Instead of questioning whether millions of ballots were counted accurately, we could watch the lottery live like we do with teams getting their lottery picks in the NBA draft. Yes, see, you wouldn't have to create all those fake votes and then risk that people might actually want to find out whether or not those votes were real. You can just ignore the entire thing. And simply have a televised lottery. And because it's called a lottery, you know it's random and there cannot be any outside influence. Just like the real lottery that is totally real and doesn't have any outside influence and definitely isn't money laundering. Not in any way. Not even imaginable. Are we going to find out that the lottery actually is all those things? Oh, probably. Other countries have begun to see the promise of sortition. Two decades ago, Canadian provinces and the Dutch government started using sortition to create citizens assemblies that generated ideas for improving democracy. In the past few years, the French, British and German governments have run lotteries to select citizens to work on climate change policies. Ireland tried a hybrid model, gathering 33 politicians and 66 randomly chosen citizens for its 2012 Constitutional Convention. And that worked out great. In Bolivia, the nonprofit Democracy in Practice works with schools to replace student council elections with lotteries. You got to get to them young and condition them. Instead of elevating the usual suspects, it welcomes a wider range of students to lead and solve real problems in their schools and communities. How in the world are there usual suspects? In student council elections, these people are insane. As we prepare for America to turn 250 years old, it may be time to rethink and renew our approach to choosing officials. The lifeblood of a democracy is the active participation of the people. There is nothing more democratic than offering each and every citizen an equal opportunity to lead. You legitimately have to be a very serious intellectual in order to believe any of this. All of it is utter nonsense. Citizens do have an equal opportunity to lead. Most choose not to take that opportunity, and many are not capable. And that, by the way, is totally fine. But let's understand what this is. This is the quote-unquote paper of record, the elite publication of news in this country arguing in an op-ed that elections should be done away with in favor of a lottery system with certain standards to be included in the pool of potential lottery candidates and some higher governing authority to choose the standards and run the lottery. Why? Because citizens can't be trusted to choose good representatives. The representatives the citizens will choose might not be willing to support our democracy, which means that once again, we must destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. Now, you might say, huh, that's kind of coincidental. For whatever reason, this clip from Klaus Schwab in 2017 goes viral within the last few days. And then right on the heels of that, this article comes out from The New York Times How strange. Oh, well, it's got to be a coincidence. But wait, what's this? Another article from Monday in the Atlantic with the headline, Americans vote too much. Now, a lot of people caught the connection between these two articles and posted them making this observation. Look at this. Some of our quote unquote elite publications are arguing that democracy is essentially obsolete. In our democracy. But this article is a little bit different. Now, it's quite long, so it's not going to be possible to go all the way through it on the podcast. I would actually suggest that everyone read it just because it is interesting, though the conclusions, as you might suspect, being from the Atlantic, are ridiculous and terrible. And we'll get to those in a second. But there are some interesting tidbits in this article. I'm going to go through just the intro and then clip out a few pieces. It's always election season in America. Dozens of local contests are taking place across the country this month, from Montgomery, Alabama to the Mariana Ranchos County Water District in California. On August 8th alone, Custer County, Colorado held a recall election for a county commissioner. Ohio asked residents to consider a major ballot measure, and voters in Oklahoma weighed in on several ballot measures. America has roughly 90,000 local governing bodies and states do not, at least publicly, track all of the elections taking place on their watch, making an exhaustive accounting nearly impossible. Oh, man, that's crazy. We can't do an exhaustive accounting of our elections in 2023. Gosh, that's weird. In many cases, contests come and go without any local media coverage either. I came across a notice for an August 29th election in Marin County, California. When I called the registrar of voters for more information, the county assistant had to search a few moments before he could tell me that the town of Tiburon, population 9000, was selecting a short term council member. So even the voter registrar does not know the elections happening under his or her watch. Americans are used to pundits and civic leaders shaming them for low turnout elections as if they had failed a test of civic character. Voters are apathetic, parties don't bother with the hard work of mobilization, and candidates are boring or so the story goes. But this argument gets the problem exactly backwards. In America, voters don't do too little, the system demands too much. We have too many elections for too many offices on too many days. We have turned the role of citizen into a full-time, unpaid job. Disinterest is the predictable, even rational response. Now, it's funny to mention low turnout elections when the last presidential election saw an entirely impossible 20% spike in total turnout. An additional 27 some odd million Americans joined in the electoral process. Joe Biden had the highest number of votes of all time. And we're told that that's so because 81 million real, lawful American voters just hated Donald Trump so much. They were rejecting Donald Trump so hard, even though Donald Trump's vote total rose 20% itself over 2016, which is very, very strange for a candidate who everybody hated as he was the incumbent, and they already knew what kind of job he was going to do. His vote total increased 20%, but Joe Biden's still blew him away because everybody hated Trump so much. One of the unique aspects of the electoral process in the United States is the sheer number of decisions American voters are asked to make when they go to the polls. Three political scientists argued at the turn of the millennium. In any single election, American voters face much higher information costs than the citizens of almost any other democracy in the world. These information costs are immense. Americans are asked to fill numerous and obscure executive, legislative and judicial positions and to decide arcane matters of policy, not just on the first Tuesday in November, but throughout the year. How are we expected to know the roles of our mayors and city councils are distinct from the roles of county executives, county council members, treasurers, controllers and boards of supervisors? On what basis should we choose our coroners, zoning commissioners, or commissioners of revenue? Who should we punish when things go wrong, reward when things go right? Now, this seems to be a fairly obvious argument that the size of government has ballooned out of control to the point where incompetence and graft and malfeasance and failure should be expected. But that's not the argument that's getting made. And now let's skip around a bit. Americans are asked to vote too much and Americans are asked to vote too often. One of the most pernicious ways politicians overburden voters is by holding off-cycle elections. Making time to vote is harder for some people than others. It's harder for people with inflexible job schedules and needy dependents, for instance. Employers are used to making accommodations for presidential elections, but some random election over the summer? Hardly. As a result, off-cycle local elections are heavily weighted toward higher income voters more so than are statewide and national elections. Now again, the author of this article is describing something interesting, insightful, and relevant and interpreting it exactly wrong. The problem with this is not that it skews toward high-income voters. The problem with this is... Is that elections are stolen and they can just shove these things through whenever and wherever and however they want, knowing that they're going to get the results they require and that they will usually just be kicking the ball into an open goal. Because not only are people too busy and too consumed with other things to know the election is happening in the first place, they're also too busy and too consumed with other things to ever check whether or not the votes in that election were real. Skipping down again. America's voting problem is a primarily local one. When compared with that of peer nations, our general election turnout is actually middle of the pack. And again, it's worth noting here that these turnout numbers not just the votes. The votes can be fabricated. The votes can be inflated with totally fraudulent votes. But that's not all. The turnout percentage is a factor of the same thing because they're supplying fraudulent and fake registrations. There is no reason whatsoever to have faith in any of the numbers they communicate ever. And although more voting at the federal level is desirable, some political science research cast doubts on whether the results of national elections would significantly change if everybody showed up. Not so in local elections, where the electorate is remarkably unrepresentative. In 2020, the year before that dismal local turnout in North Carolina mentioned earlier in the article, about 75 percent of voters, five times as many people, turned out for the general election and statewide contests. Yep. Yep. They got 75 percent turnout, extraordinary turnout in the election in North Carolina in 2020 that they were almost able to steal. And in 2022, 51 percent of registered voters or nearly three and a half times as many people as the previous year turned out for the statewide election. The Who Votes for Mayor project examined 23 million voter records in local elections across 50 cities and came away with alarming findings in 10 of america's 30 largest cities turnout didn't exceed 15 percent in las vegas fort worth and dallas turnout was in the single digits portland oregon was the only city in the sample that saw the majority of its registered voters turn out probably because Portland regularly votes for mayor on the federal election holiday in November. The city's special elections are more in line with national trends. In November 2019 and May 2023, voter turnout was only about 30 percent. So there are too many elections for too many positions and the voters don't show up. Skipping down once more. Aligning local elections with national ones would increase turnout and likely create a more representative electorate, but just filling out a ballot doesn't constitute meaningful accountability. That's in part because most races at the local level go uncontested in 2020, 61% of city races and 78% of County races were uncontested as were 62% of school board races and 84% of judicial races. Even when a race is competitive, finding reliable information about local candidates can be nearly impossible, turning voting into an exercise in randomness or, at best, name recognition. And also, of course, just simply choosing a D or an R or an I next to the candidate's name. So we're asked to vote on too many things, too often, nobody shows up, And most of the time it wouldn't matter anyway because there is only one candidate on the ballot and that candidate being uncontested is guaranteed to win. And isn't that strange? It's almost like one of the parties just decides not to care in a given situation. Like they just make a deal and say, "Okay, that's fine. You can have that city council member and we'll have the other one. We don't want to waste money on this. Why even run a candidate? Let's just make a deal. The voters won't care. They're not even going to know. And if they did care, we're just going to steal it anyway. So let's just skip all that. It's like Klaus Schwab says, if we already know the result, why even bother? He writes, nature abhors a vacuum where voters disappear. Special interests rush in. In the absence of regular voter direction, our local elected officials are not directionless. Instead of democracy, what we've got is government by homeowners associations, police unions, teachers unions, developers, chambers of commerce, environmental groups, and so forth. He says the specific policies may be good or bad. That's not the point. The point is that government should act according to public need, not based on who has the money, time and will to create and sustain an advocacy group. And he concludes this way. Blaming the voters is easy. Democracy is on the line. People need to get off their asses and vote. The problem isn't the system, it's the people. Maybe if they saw one more Instagram infographic or heard one more speech about the importance of civics, they would become regular voters. Putting aside the moral status of non-voters, this argument is pure fantasy. As the political scientist Robert Dahl once quipped, like other performers, including teachers, ministers, and actors, Politicians and political activists are prone to overestimate the interest of the audience in their performance. So the idea here is that politicians think that everybody is far more interested in politics than they really are. And that may well be an accurate representation, but it is nonetheless one that people are manipulated into believing by culture. And by their frustrations with the system and by the complexities of the system and the size of the system itself, as we see in this article. Back to the article. Contrary to what good government types may wish, few Americans want to be full-time political animals. Most of us have absolutely no desire to learn what our county commissioners or district attorneys are up to, let alone take on the Herculean task of evaluating their records effective representational government must empower voters to hold their elected officials accountable without sucking the life out of its citizens. Even the most dedicated participants in local politics aren't experts in everything, just in the parts of local government that provide them with the benefits they find meaningful. When ordinary voters do show up in local politics, they're not walking onto an even playing field. Individuals who become motivated to seek criminal justice reform after an unjust killing by a police officer or parents who feel compelled to change school curricula are entering unfamiliar territory that has been landscaped by special interests and elected officials know that a flurry of political activity can die out quickly while interest group activity remains constant. When I ask local government officials about this problem, I usually hear denial or resignation. Nonsense. Kevin Balmer, the executive director of the Colorado Municipal League, told me a few months ago when I asked him whether he worries that low voter turnout yields an unrepresentative government. He suggested that this view calls, quote, into question not only the legitimacy of a municipal election, but the integrity of the people elected as if they don't represent their community. Those are the things that academics and people say that have never been to a city council meeting and don't go to planning commission meetings. And that's very convenient. He's saying that it's not true that officials elected by almost no one are unrepresentative of the communities. And his proof is that in the meetings attended by almost no one in the communities, These officials elected by almost no one seem to represent the almost no one attending the meetings. Once again, these people are insane. I don't doubt that most local officials have integrity. Many, if not most, of the local officials I've spoken with are kind, hardworking and genuinely committed citizens. They are pledging their efforts for very few benefits and are forced to face ire and controversy as they serve their communities. But our system shouldn't depend on the benevolence of local officials. In a healthy democracy, it should depend on the electorate holding local officials accountable through the ballot box. Giving power to the people is sometimes conflated with giving people more access to government decision making through, say, community meetings or ballot measures. But if only a small, unrepresentative group of people are willing to be full-time Democrats, then that extra ballot measure, election, or public meeting isn't more democracy, it's less. Most of us are part-time Democrats. That's not going to change, and political hobbyists should stop expecting it to. Now, while I would argue that he's misinterpreting the cause of many of these issues, while maintaining plenty of false assumptions like that our elections are legitimate in the first place, he is pointing out, to a large extent, a real issue in American politics. The article is almost totally devoid of solutions other than Government programs to further educate voters and make them aware of these elections and other various political events and issues. But the real problem here is that government is just far too big, and because of its size, it becomes far too complicated and far too opaque for a normal citizen to understand. It's worth noting that virtually none of it is necessary. And if we had responsible people actually serving in government, We could eliminate most of these bureaucracies and just leave it to local communities to organize themselves rather than always pushing all these decisions up to higher and higher authorities. But again, what's with the attack on democracy in order to preserve our democracy? This is a pretty consistent narrative that is developing here. We have these problems with democracy. And while they're arguing for destroying democracy in order to save our democracy, we're supposed to ignore the first part and just focus on the second part. We need to save our democracy because if we lose our democracy here, then we can't have our democracy worldwide and having our democracy worldwide is the whole point. That's why we have militaries out there implementing our democracy by force. That's why we have the censorship and propaganda, and that's why we steal elections. We have to spread our democracy worldwide, whether the people want it or not. We need to save our democracy at all costs, even if that means destroying democracy. And if people get upset about us destroying democracy, We're just going to redefine destroying democracy as saving our democracy. And if we tell them enough, if we use enough censorship and propaganda, and then we threaten them with the state use of force against them, they will agree with us destroying democracy in order to save our democracy. And one of the best ways to save our democracy is by removing the people who threaten it the most. And no one threatens our democracy more than Donald J. Trump. We have to find some way to eliminate Donald J. Trump in order to preserve our democracy. And sure, we were all raised to understand that pursuing one's political opponent by abusing the justice system was the mark of a dictatorial banana republic. Now it's just what's necessary to save our democracy. So if we indict him four times, that's just fine. Everything they tried in the last eight years, that was just a prelude. We are told by our betters that Donald Trump committed various crimes that are all reflected in those indictments. The evidence in each and every one of them is damning. The legal theory on which these indictments have been brought is perfect and unassailable. All of it is wholly constitutional. There is absolutely no problem with us becoming a banana republic led by an illegitimate authoritarian dictator. All of that is right off the table because we say so. It's all been redefined in order to protect our democracy. So it's all okay. It's all acceptable and it's all good. It's airtight. In fact, Donald Trump is a criminal. It's about time everybody recognized that. And it's about time the justice system has begun to hold him accountable. But Despite how airtight all those indictments are and how much the legal system will, in fact, hold Donald Trump accountable, it's not quite enough. His poll numbers keep rising no matter how many indictments are brought against him. His supporters just keep laughing and mocking all of the people arguing that Donald Trump is actually a criminal in any way. It's just not working. We need more. And so last week, the rumblings began about a potential indictment out of Arizona. This is from August 17th in the post-millennial Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs urges a G to press charges on Trump for election interference, then walks it back. But they've walked it forward again too. less than a week after Donald Trump was indicted in Georgia over alleged attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Arizona officials have announced that they are currently investigating an alternate elector plan that was carried out in the Grand Canyon state. Governor Katie Hobbs said that she supported Attorney General Chris Mays' move to hold Trump accountable, but her team walked that back, claiming she meant anyone who interfered with the democratic process. The former president has so far been indicted twice in connection with the 2020 election and four times in total. I have been an advocate for holding folks involved in trying to overturn the will of the voters in the 2020 election accountable, and this is part of that, Hobbs told Fox 10 at an event in Arizona. Accountability is critical. I don't think we're going to change direction until there's accountability at the top level, and this is an important step forward that should move forward and play out in the legal process. The governor's communications director later told KTAR News that she had, quote, misheard the question and was not referring explicitly to Trump, but to, quote, anyone who breaks the law. Former Republican governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, who was also in attendance, said she believed the state's attorney general, quote, is going to move forward on some kind of disciplinary action. Mays said in a statement that her office was in the process of, quote, doing a thorough and professional investigation end quote, into the alternate electors who allegedly signed paperwork that claimed Trump had won Arizona. We will do it on our timetable as justice demands, she added. So, Arizona is yet another state that had alternate electors on file. How odd. Like in those other states, I bet there's no way that those alternate electors will ever be heard from again. Now, it's worth noting that Katie Hobbs is totally illegitimate as governor of Arizona, and Chris Mays is totally illegitimate as attorney general of Arizona. So if and when they bring indictments, those indictments will be similarly illegitimate. And I know that that doesn't, Doesn't work for a lot of people, and they still are very, very worried because the regime is in full control, and these people really are in office, and they really do have all this power, and they're gonna go after Trump, and they're gonna put him in jail, and everything's gonna fall apart, and then we won't have a country anymore. Well, okay. I guess maybe there is some shred of possibility that I and other people like me are completely wrong about each and every aspect of all of this, except for the fact that we're the ones who will admit the obvious truth that there is no way in hell Joe Biden got anywhere near 81 million real lawful American votes. And the other side does not admit that. And that mistake is incorporated into their thinking about each and every one of these issues. They also happen to be the people that wore masks in their cars and pretended it was a good idea to inject themselves with a toxic experimental substance that can't protect them from a disease that can't kill them. Because the TV told them they'd get in trouble if they didn't. So we might be completely wrong about all of it. Or they might be completely wrong about all of it. But it's one of those two things. There's not some gray area about whether or not Joe Biden won the 2020 election or whether our elections are stolen. So, hey, choose your fighter. Maybe we're wrong about all of it. Maybe. But Katie Hobbs and Chris Mays are absolutely not legitimate and they don't pose a threat to anything. This is just another indictment narrative if it is needed at some point. Katie Hobbs' election is still under contest and appeal by Kerry Lake. Similarly, Chris Mays' election is still under contest and appeal by Abe Hamaday. There's just a few hundred votes in that election and they already have more than enough votes to overcome that difference. It is only a matter of time. These people do not have the power of their office. And if you believe it's possible there and you think it's not for Joe Biden, I don't know what to tell you. Picking out material facts about the world that suggest that Joe Biden is exercising power and authority as president are not nearly enough to make it a fact about the real world that Joe Biden is in fact president. So I'm sorry, but this is nothing more than a narrative element if it is needed for people to wake up. Do we need to see illegitimate officials in Arizona go after Donald Trump before their own illegitimacy is recognized by the public, creating a far more dramatic situation? Well, I guess we might. And if we do, we do. And if it happens, we're going to be laughing at it. But what we have here is another attempt to get Donald J. Trump out of the picture in order to save our democracy. Indicting your political opponent five separate times on trumped up charges based on no facts and novel legal theories used to be the sort of thing that we would say would destroy democracy. But sometimes you need to destroy democracy in order to save our democracy, and that is the point. Now, there was a rumor this week, and it does seem to be just a rumor, that Gavin Newsom, the illegitimate governor of California, was leading an effort to have legislation passed in California that would bar Donald Trump from being on the ballot in 2024. Now, does Donald Trump need to be on the ballot in 2024 in California in order to win an election under normal circumstances via the Electoral College? If everything else was normal the way it's supposed to be, would Donald Trump need California to win? No, he wouldn't. But the idea is that that would start a trend Other states would attempt to do the same thing, and Donald Trump might be left off the ballot in enough states to allow the communists once again to win. So that is talked about as a strategy. Now, will something like that happen in California? It is entirely possible that something like that will happen in California. But for now, it is a rumor. While considering that rumor, it is worth noting that this article ran in CBS News on July 15th of 2019. Will Gavin Newsom try to kick Trump off the California ballot? Nearly two years after then-California Governor Jerry Brown quashed a bill to force presidential candidates to release their tax returns, Golden State lawmakers have returned a nearly identical measure to the desk of Brown's successor. Now California Governor Gavin Newsom has less than two weeks to decide the fate of the proposed law, which has provoked fierce criticism from Republicans across the country. Billed as the Presidential Tax Transparency and Accountability Act, the law would demand that presidential candidates disclose five years of federal tax returns in order to be listed on the state's primary election ballot. As a candidate in 2017, Gavin Newsom supported the bill prior to Brown's veto. The current measure on Newsom's desk today differs little from its predecessor, except that it expands the disclosure requirement to gubernatorial candidates. And remember, again, this is 2019 here. But Trump campaign communications director Tim Murtaugh told CBS News, and this is in 2019, the Constitution is clear on the qualifications for someone to serve as president, and states cannot add additional requirements on their own. The bill also violates the First Amendment right of association since California can't tell political parties which candidates their members can or cannot vote for in a primary election. The article also notes in 1994, the Supreme Court ruled that states, in that case Arkansas, could not add their own qualifications for congressional candidates. Interpreting the high court's ruling six years later, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals declared a California law unconstitutional for, quote, creating an absolute bar to candidates who otherwise meet the requirements of the qualifications clause. Now, obviously, Trump was not barred from California elections in that cycle. But there is a history here of consideration of different ways to prevent Trump from appearing on the California ballot. They have already declared saving our democracy around the world. As a necessary goal that must be achieved at all costs, they are willing to destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. They're attempting a series of indictments to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. They already tried that impeachment over the very violent insurrection to keep him off the ballot in the future. That didn't work. So we have that. We have the indictments. We have potential changes in the law within states to try to prevent him from being on the ballot in those states, which also could affect the primary. By the way, there's a lot of delegates to be had in California. And Donald Trump is going to win those delegates in a Republican primary. And because the primaries have been pushed up in a state like California, making them earlier to make them more impactful. If Donald Trump wins those California delegates early, then it makes him even more of a prohibitive favorite to win the nomination. And again, this is all assuming that we are in a normal process, which we are not at all. These primaries are for show. We are seeing a series of narrative deployments, and I suspect absolutely nothing more. All that matters in the end is whether or not the regime steals the primary from Donald Trump. No one is going to believe that Donald Trump lost. It is just a matter of how things proceed and how we react to it. But the impeachment, all the indictments, media narratives, etc., attempts to change the law, none of that is enough, so we need more options on how to make sure Donald Trump cannot run for president. And so we're coming back around to the same argument used in that failed impeachment attempt The argument that says because Donald Trump engaged in insurrection, he is no longer able to run for public office in the United States based on a Civil War amendment, the 14th Amendment, that said members of the Confederacy could not run for public office. A week or so ago, there was an article by two conservative scholars of the Federalist Society Law professor William Baud of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas. They wrote a paper to be published in the Pennsylvania Law Review about how Donald Trump is not eligible to be president. They write the bottom line is that Donald Trump both engaged in insurrection or rebellion and gave aid or comfort to others engaging in such conduct within the original meaning of those terms as employed in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Here is the Los Angeles Times reporting on their piece. As Baud and Paulson put it, quote, there's a list of candidates and officials who must face judgment under Section 3, a roster that could include Republicans in Congress and in state governments. Quote, former President Donald Trump is at the top of that list. Indeed, the evidence amassed last year in the hearings and the final report of the House January 6th Committee established that Trump ran afoul of the Constitution's disqualification clause. To wit, and now we are going to be educated by the very astute, very honest writers at the Los Angeles Times. Lying from election day to the present that victory was stolen from him. Coercing Republican state officials, Justice Department appointees and then Vice President Mike Pence to throw out Joe Biden's votes, encouraging fake presidential electors, summoning supporters to a, quote unquote, wild rally to pressure Congress and Pence not to certify Biden's election on January 6, 2021, telling them to, quote, fight like hell, failing to intervene for three hours while they ravaged the Capitol. Stopped the certification and threatened the lives of Pence and lawmakers, providing, quote, aid and comfort to the insurrectionists, as captured by his noxious video that evening, professing his love for them and more recently by his promises to pardon them once he's reelected. Oh, and nearly a year into Biden's presidency, calling for, quote unquote, termination of the Constitution he once swore to uphold so he could be reinstalled in the White House imagine him actually being reelected and taking the oath again, lying right off the bat. So was any of that an honest interpretation about what happened on January 6th and after? Of course not. And it starts right from the beginning with the obvious lie, the assertion that the election was free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflected the will and intent of the American voter. Stemming from that, Everything else is nonsense. None of those things, by the way, were crimes. All of it was adjudicated in the impeachment hearing while Trump was in office. None of it constitutes insurrection. None of it even falls outside of Donald Trump's duties as president. Once you understand that the election was stolen, an irrefutable fact that they have not incorporated into their narrative yet, but nonetheless will be forced to incorporate in the future. Now, who will prevent Trump from appearing on the ballot under this, at least as they describe it, constitutional necessity? Donald Trump cannot be allowed to ever hold office again because he's been a very, very bad boy, as determined by these two law professors. The Los Angeles Times writes, Bod and Paulson say the enforcers should be, quote, anyone whose job it is to figure out whether someone is legally qualified, end quote, to hold office and to be included on state ballots. That is state election administrators, typically the secretaries of state. Oh, you mean All of those secretaries of state around the country that George Soros has recruited and trained and then funded and then stolen elections for those secretaries of state. They should have the authority to determine whether or not someone is allowed to run for president, even though they are not in any way barred. By the Constitution. Oh, but they are barred this way, according to the qualitative and subjective interpretations of these two law professors and eventually George Soros's secretaries of state. Back to the Times article. Okay, but that's easier said than done. Given the decentralized state by state administration of elections and the nation's polarization, you can imagine officials in blue states like California being receptive to challenges to Trump's name on the ballot, while those in states that are MAGA hat red would give such actions the back of their hand. Baud and Paulson do not address the chaos that our red blue divide could bring on. And yes, we are so divided, at least according to the results of totally fraudulent elections. So these are the two conservatives making this argument, which means that even Republicans know Donald Trump is not allowed to run. That's what you'll hear from the mainstream media. That's what you'll hear from uniparty left villagers and people on the uniparty right will support this opinion because they want to get rid of Donald Trump as well. But that's not enough. We need the uniparty left To argue it as well. We gotta get the global communists in the mix. And so we have J. Michael Luddig and Lawrence Tribe writing over the weekend for the Atlantic. This is from the nineteenth of August. The Constitution prohibits Trump from ever being president again. And this is a very long article. I just want to hit some excerpts. They write this protection embodied in the amendments often overlooked section three, same as the last article automatically excludes from future office and position of power in the United States government and also from any equivalent office and position of power in the sovereign states and their subdivisions, any person who has taken an oath to support and defend our Constitution and thereafter rebels against that sacred charter, either through overt insurrection or by giving aid or comfort to the Constitution's enemies. So that is the argument. And here, as in the last article, they are at least partially referencing this post from Donald Trump on Truth Social from back in early December of 2022. Trump wrote, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Now, that is not Donald Trump promoting the overthrow of the Constitution. That is Donald Trump saying that when the country has been usurped in league with foreign powers to subsume our constitutional republic into the global regime, also known as our democracy, all bets are off. And it turns out that all bets are off, which is why all arguments about how the only way to remove Joe Biden is through impeachment have always been so utterly stupid. We are in uncharted territory, and there is no way in the world that the founders would have ever intended the Constitution to actually solidify the usurpation of this nation. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and the idea that any good American could ever argue otherwise makes no sense to me. Now, Luddig and Lawrence Tribe. Lawrence Tribe is one of the most deranged regime communists online. It's absolutely insane. But they address the conservative argument for this that we just went through. Written with precision and thoroughness, the article makes the compelling case that the relevance of Section 3 did not lapse with the passing of the generation of Confederate rebels whose treasonous designs for the country inspired the provision that the provision was not and could not have been repealed by the Amnesty Act of 1872 or by subsequent legislative enactments, and that Section 3 has not been regulated by any judicial precedent to a mere source of potential legislative authority, but continues to this day by its own force to automatically render ineligible for future public office All quote former office holders who then participate in insurrection or rebellion end quote as Baud and Paulson put it. So, this thing is self enforcing because Trump did that, he is automatically ineligible end of story. And that works so long as you accept their definition and understanding of what Trump did. Of course, all of that falls apart the moment you realize that the elections were stolen. All of these anti-Trump arguments to keep him off the ballot, all of them, absolutely all of them, all of the anti-Trump arguments in general, all require as a supposition that the election was actually free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results reflected the will and intent of the American voter. That key premise to all of this is absolutely wrong. Therefore, the entire argument is wrong. None of this is valid. None of it is close to valid. None of it will ever be proven in reality to be valid. It does not matter how far they push these things. Reality will prove and history will record this point as true. Joe Biden did not receive 81 million real, lawful American votes, and therefore all the bets are off. All of this stuff they say is nonsense. That is why they are determined to figure out different ways to destroy democracy in order to protect our democracy. They wouldn't need to do all that if Donald Trump could be defeated by Joe Biden in a legitimate election and nothing in the world could be more obvious. Here is how the communists conclude if Donald Trump were to be reelected. How could any citizen trust that he would uphold the oath of office he would take upon his inauguration? As recently as last December, the former president posted on Truth Social his persistent view that the 2020 election was a massive fraud, one that, quote, allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. And you got to laugh at them questioning how could any citizen trust that Donald Trump would uphold his oath to the Constitution? Well, it's because we've watched him do it in the face of every system of power in the world, trying to thwart his efforts. We trust him because we watch him all the time and he is responsive to the people and we can watch him being responsive to the people. That is how you actually form trust. Back to the article. No person who sought to overthrow our Constitution and thereafter declared that it should be terminated and that he be immediately returned to the presidency can in good faith take the oath that Article 2, Section 1 demands of any president elect, quote, before he enter on the execution of his office. And honestly, every sentence in this article should have an asterisk at the end that says, assuming we are right about the elections. And of course, they're not right about the elections. Here's George Washington University professor of law, Jonathan Turley, the other night with Laura Ingram. Fox News contributor, Professor, break this down to the layman out there. What on earth are they arguing? It's Larry Tribe. It's former Bush uh, Fourth Circuit Judge Mike Ludig and Deval Patrick all together that Trump cannot be on the ballot. Explain that.
3: Well, you know, quite frankly, I think this is the single most dangerous constitutional theory I've seen pop up in decades. I mean, this is an argument that under the 14th Amendment, uh, Donald Trump can be barred from running again, from ever holding office uh, in the federal government uh, because he violated his oath. He supported an insurrection or rebellion. The argu- under the 14th Amendment, you have this bar on federal office Uh, if you supported or if you gave aid and comfort uh, to an insurrection or rebellion. Now, of course, that brings you to the original question. What was January 6th? In the view of many citizens, including myself, it was a protest that became a riot. It was not a rebellion or insurrection, but that's a matter of disagreement between citizens. But Donald Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection, not even incitement. Uh, A special counsel... Jack Smith charged him with a variety of crimes like fraud. He notably did not charge him with even incitement.
0: Now, Turley doesn't believe that the election was stolen and neither does Alan Dershowitz, who I'm going to get to in just a second. But the argument here is that there's no legitimate way to claim that Donald Trump incited or participated in an insurrection or rebellion. So the argument is just ridiculous on its face. What we have are people just simply declaring that they believe Donald Trump participated in or incited An insurrection or rebellion, and therefore, because of their belief in that, he can't run again. Well, hey, I believe that all of the Democrats promoting the false narrative about George Floyd and Jacob Blake and Breonna Taylor throughout 2020 incited an insurrection and a rebellion. And Joe Biden was part of that, and Kamala Harris was part of that. I believe that they also participated in the active overthrow of. Our government through a stolen election, and then they did it again on January 6th by provoking some of the elements, at least of that very violent insurrection. So that's my opinion. They have their opinion. Shouldn't it matter in a democracy whether more citizens believe that Donald Trump did not instigate, incite, participate in insurrection or rebellion than the ones who do believe that? Doesn't that matter in a democracy? Oh, no, of course it doesn't. We have to listen to the elites. We have to listen to the experts. It's worth it to override the will of the actual citizens because they're too stupid to know about these arcane and totally invented legal theories. This is just another instance of how we're going to have to destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. Here's Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz one of the most reputable constitutional law professors in the country. Not that I personally care about that, but while we're playing credential games to override democratic perspectives, we might as well use our own credential person.
5: Well, first of all, I predicted that in my book, Trump, I have a whole section on the complicity of the media and academia. And this was an obvious ploy the Constitution simply doesn't permit this. There's no procedure. What Tribe says is it's self enforcing. In other words, any Secretary of State, any governor who doesn't like a candidate can enforce it. For example, the governor of Texas could suddenly decide that uh, uh, Joe Biden is an insurrectionist because of his failure to control the borders, and he can disqualify uh, Joe Biden. This will cause a constitutional crisis. Look, the framers of the Constitution took so much care to make it so difficult to impeach a sitting president, even if he has committed treason. You need two-thirds of the Senate to get rid of a president who's committed treason. Do you think the framers of the 14th Amendment would have simply allowed any secretary of state without any process, without any procedure, to simply say, no, we think— President Trump has engaged in insurrection, even though no court has ever found that. And therefore, we're going to take him off our ballot and we're going to create a constitutional crisis. That is simply wrong. Professor Tribe does not know what he's talking about. And I guarantee you one thing. If the shoe were on the other foot, if this were an attempt to disqualify a Democrat, Professor Tribe would be writing exactly the opposite article and citing exactly the same sources, because you can always count on Tribe to twist, distort, and turn the Constitution, to come out to make his political points. That's why we're different. I'm not smarter than Tribe. I'm just more honest. I look at the Constitution not through the eyes of partisan or political politics. As you know, I'm not myself a Trump supporter. I look at it through the eyes of history, the framers. He first looks at the result he wants, and then he manipulates and figures out how we can get at that result. And Judge Ludic has, although he's been a very, very conservative and cautious Republican, has just decided to join this on the other side, and the other two professors too. They're just dead wrong. You don't have a constitutional procedure for disqualifying a candidate without setting up procedures for how you do it. As Felix Frankfurter once said, the story of liberty is a story of procedures. And if you lack a procedure and you just say it's self-enforcing, any secretary of state, any governor can deprive me of the right to run, to vote against Donald Trump for the third time and deny you the right to vote for Donald Trump the third time. That's not what America is about. America is about an election. If you don't like Donald Trump, vote against him, campaign against him, contribute against him, but don't try to disqualify him and tens of millions of Americans who want to vote for him. That's un-American and unconstitutional. Uh,
0: so that is Alan Dershowitz on War Room addressing the Ludwig and Tribe article. And he was actually on last week addressing the article by the two conservative professors. And he has no doubt about any of this. That provision was put in there to deal specifically With members of the Confederacy, and I have a feeling that we have not seen the end of this 14th Amendment stuff. I think that we are being shown a series of stories to show us what's wrong with these post-Civil War amendments, potentially understanding that we have been lied to a great deal about our post-Civil War history, same as we've been lied to on just about everything, our World War II history, our World War I history, our financial history. I have no doubt that we are going to get there. But the point is, there's no way this can actually be applied in any constitutional manner. So we have all these efforts to save our democracy by destroying democracy, and all of them are equally illegitimate. They are all totally illegitimate. Should we be worried about them? In my mind, absolutely not. But they are worth understanding because there are lessons here and it's worth keeping an eye out and being prepared to resist all of this, to speak to people about how wrong this is so they understand and resist as well. The stories, though they may be just narrative deployments, are still important. Because the underlying issues are important, it doesn't matter if Trump is actually in legal jeopardy. We need to have these conversations as a country to know the way forward and to remove these things as we go along so that the system that has designed itself to exploit us can have all of those elements stripped away. So we eventually return to the system that was not designed to exploit us. If indeed one of those ever existed, and let's hope that it did. Now, there's some interesting commentary around this because all of these attempts to disqualify Donald Trump and remove him, these attempts to destroy democracy in order to save our democracy worldwide. Richard Barris, who has been a guest on this podcast before, pointed out the other day on Twitter that his polling suggests upwards of 30% of Trump supporters will write in Trump's name on the ballot if he is left off the ballot. That means there is no Republican who has any chance of winning besides Donald Trump, period. If you think Trump supporters are going to rally around a Republican candidate after watching the GOP establishment steal the primary from Trump, good luck. I will not be doing that. If they steal the nomination from Donald Trump, then Donald Trump leaves the Republican Party. I will start the write-in campaign for him myself the next day. Want to start a third party? Maybe have Trump and RFK Jr. as president and vice president? If that's what it takes, fantastic. Watch the country unite around that. A write-in campaign for the two of them on a third-party ticket? Well, that would work out just fine. And everyone would know it. You got to understand that at that point, we are going to be operating in an environment that includes one more year of waking up from right now, one more year of this every week. There are events that wake thousands of people up, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions. That Maui fire thing sure woke a lot of people up. These Trump indictments are waking a lot of people up. Uniparty right villagers who watch these ridiculous debates tonight and watch Trump's interview with Tucker. A lot of them are going to wake up. We're talking about another year of that. People are not going to be thinking what they think right now. And it is all headed in one direction. We can win a write-in campaign. I have no doubt about it. And if the write-in is what forces all those ballots to be counted by hand and preserved in a checkable fashion... I'm all for it. Hopefully we don't have to get there, but that narrative deployment is available if necessary. And if that's the way to restore the republic, the people will go out and they will write Donald Trump in. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind. Even CNN at this point is cluing standard issue villagers into the idea that Donald Trump really is this dominant. This is from a few days ago on CNN. Trump's
2: lead is even larger. So these are three polls that were out over the last week. Look at these leads for Donald Trump. He's at 62% of the CBS News YouGov poll, 57% in Quinnipiac University, 53% of the Fox News poll. Look at where DeSantis is in all these polls. Look how far back he is. He doesn't crack 20% in any of them. So in Iowa, you have that 20-plus point lead for Donald Trump. That's actually smaller than the lead we see nationally where we see these leads of 35, 40, near 50 points in this particular case. Of course, the primary is one thing. If Trump wins the primary, can he go on and win the general election? And we've had three polls that have come out over the last week here. And I want you to take a look at how close this race is at this particular point. Granted, the general election is over a year away. The largest lead for Joe Biden is just three points within the margin of error. No clear leader. Look at these one point, one point. If you go back at where we were at this point four years ago, Joe Biden's lead was high single digits to low double digits. This is significantly closer than where we were four years ago. So this idea that Donald Trump can't win the general election, I want you to lose that idea. This race is very, very close. And Donald Trump is polling better right now than basically at any point during the entire 2020. After four indictments. After four indictments. It just doesn't really seem to matter.
0: So Donald Trump is dominating in fake news polls about a fake primary and then a fake general election while everyone is trying to make sure that he can't even be on the ballot for the fake primary or the fake election. And so tonight they are going to have a fake debate on Fox News between eight Republican also rans who will never, ever, ever possibly matter. Will one of them be declared the winner of the GOP nomination? Hey, maybe, maybe they really are going to do that for Ron. And if they do, we will win a write-in campaign. That's fine. There is no circumstance that would lead Ron to achieve an actual majority. So it doesn't matter. And that is also true on the other side. We're talking about six months from now to a year from now. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to look a whole lot more attractive once no one on that side of the aisle can even pretend that Joe Biden is not demented and totally corrupt, especially as there is more Joe Biden and Hunter Biden evidence pouring out into the central narrative every day. All of it, or most all of it, is stuff that we have known for quite a long time and stuff that is thoroughly documented in the Marco Polo report on the Biden laptop. But Joe Biden's not going to just survive a whole lot more of that. Now, one Republican also ran who won't be on the debate stage is Larry Elder. And if you remember, in late 2020, Larry Elder was appointed to a position in the Trump administration as a member of the Commission on The social status of black men and boys, which is an issue that Larry Elder focuses on quite a bit. Now, Larry Elder ran as a candidate in the California governor recall race, then just rolled over and took the L without challenging the legitimacy of California's elections at all. Is that just a narrative deployment? Is that an info op? Did Larry Elder do what he was supposed to do and then? just bow out when he was supposed to bow out. Maybe got to leave that option on the table, but also he didn't say or do anything about obviously stolen elections in California. So what are we to think of him? Can't trust him, but he's left off the debate stage. So he has decided that he is going to sue the RNC on X Twitter yesterday. He wrote, I intend to sue the RNC to halt Wednesday's presidential debate. I said from the beginning that it appeared the rules of the game were rigged. Little did we know just how rigged it is. For some reason, the establishment leaders at the RNC are afraid of having my voice on the debate stage. Just as I had to fight to successfully be on the ballot in the California recall election, I will fight to be on that debate stage because I fully met all of the requirements to do so. Well, that doesn't seem to have worked, and the debate is meant to be held at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. Donald Trump is not attending the debate. Obviously, he's going to have an interview aired with Tucker Carlson that is going to be aired on X Twitter this evening. Donald Trump released a statement about all of this through his campaign senior advisor, Chris La Savita writes, President Trump has already won this evening's debate because everything is going to be about him. Only President Trump has the policy ideas, the fortitude and the polling to go head to head with crooked Joe Biden in the general election. Republican voters recognize this, hence President Trump's 62 to 16 lead in the GOP primary. And that was taken directly from that CNN segment with Harry Enten. You should also expect the Fox hosts to show an unnatural obsession with President Trump tonight, asking other Republican candidates over and over to react to President Trump's policy positions. In fact, we will be tallying the number of times President Trump's name is brought up and his total speaking time, even though he is not in attendance. And that'll be hilarious. When the other candidates do get a chance to speak, they will be a faint echo or maybe even a copycat of President Trump's make America great again agenda. That's because President Trump's first four years in office were the most consequential and led to the best economy in American history. Nobody at tonight's gathering can match the big ideas and bold policy agenda President Trump has already laid out in the run-up to 2024, including details on how he will reduce inflation, unleash American energy, seal the border, and destroy the drug cartels, clean up our crime-ridden cities, and stop the killing in Ukraine. In fact, tonight's Republican undercard event really shouldn't even be called a debate but rather an audition to be part of President Trump's team in his second term. And of course, that is what it is. Now, unless this is an info op, absolutely no one on that stage deserves to be any part of Trump's second term. Now, did Mike Pence sacrifice himself and do what he was meant to do in service of something much greater when he refused to return the certifications to the states for further review? Well, if he did, then he gets a pass. Are people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley simply playing the role that they were asked to play and be hated by making terrible anti-Trump arguments? Vivek, to be fair, does not make too many anti-Trump arguments, but he does ignore critical things and gets way too much wrong. Nonetheless, none of these people talk about stolen elections in our country. And all of them are running to replace the man the elections were stolen from. That makes them complicit in that same treason, as far as I'm concerned. So unless this is some grand info op, absolutely none of them should be anywhere near a second Trump administration. But I'm open to the possibilities. We'll see. And then, of course, there is also Ron DeSantis, who, again, unless this is some kind of Strange pro Trump red team op, this whole DeSantis thing and the DeSantis simps beneath him. Seems to be one of the worst politicians in American history, one of the most sold out, has pretty much barely mentioned election problems in Florida while presiding over them and benefiting from them. So, if we're to take all of this at face value, Ron DeSantis is the worst of that bunch. But hey, we'll remain open to the possibilities. If we're going to take it at face value, though, this looks like a GOP establishment effort to make sure that Donald Trump is not on the ballot by whatever means necessary, because that's the world we're in. Now, it is worth destroying democracy in order to save our democracy worldwide. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work.